promises are hard to keep for some of us. I, I would venture to say if I said, raise your hand in this room, anyone in this room who's never broken a promise, raise your hand, I would just say that no one in this room can raise their hand. No one in this room could raise their hand because by our nature, we are promise breakers. It's, it's who we are. It's, we came out of the womb that way. It's not something that we intend to do, but that's who we are. Why is it important, or isn't it important, to have something or someone or some place that is the same, day-to-day, that never changes, that is reliable? The, the problem, you know, many of us have a great deal of trouble with change. I mean, like, it, for some of us, it's a real problem. It's a lot of anxiety a lot of stuff happens when things change. Others of us, we can manage change, but we just need time to process it, and we can be okay with it. Some of us, we just like change all the time. Those are the people who really mess up the world. You know what I mean? I believe that our hearts and who we are as people, we need some things that never change. We need to know that there's some place, some person, something that is going to be the same day to day. And we're going to be looking at that today in our text, Genesis 9. Let me read that for us, all right? We're going to be doing verses 1 through 17. I'm reading from the New American Standard. If you're reading from something different, just read, and we'll all end in verse 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given." Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, and by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth and abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and said to his sons with him, Now I behold, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth, all with you, all of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And I establish my covenant with you, and all my flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it should be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it should come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that a bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I remember my covenant, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which, is, which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. You've heard us say that any time we're reading Scripture and that the Lord repeats something, he's trying to make a point. 
He's trying to make a point. In this passage, there's more than one verse that is repeated almost word for word, and if not word for word, very close to it. And if you'll notice also, open up here, flip back just a, a couple of chapters to Genesis chapter 1. And I want to draw out some similarities here. Verse 28. You're going to see that basically what's happening here, in a sense, that Genesis chapter 9 is a reboot from Genesis chapter 1. You know what it is? It's kind of like if you work with a computer at all, you'll know that when things don't work, you just push the reboot button and you start over a little bit. And Genesis 9 is that point of starting over for the Lord. If you, know, if you remember the story, I'm just not going to spend a lot of time, but he, he set the world up. He made it perfect. He put two perfect people in it. They chose to exert their will and said, we don't like your way. We're going to do it our way. They choose to do it their way, and in doing it their way, they break themselves, they break the world, they break nature, and they break their relationship with God. And that begins this this unwinding of perfection. And it begins this unwinding of perfection to the point that God gets to this place and he says, this is a train wreck. Everything these people do is evil. Every thought they think is evil. And he says, we're going to do this over. I found one man who is blameless. Being blameless doesn't mean they're sinless. Being blameless means that they know their sin and they repent from it and they restore their relationship with God. It means that they are avidly, urgently seeking to know God, even amidst their sin. And he goes, I found one like that. His name is Noah. And I'm going to select him to do my reboot with. So he says to Noah, make an ark. And he says, what's an ark? They have that discussion. And he says, I'm drawing all the animals to you. And can you imagine he's going, that's weird. That's crazy. How is this going to work? And he does so. And it begins to rain. And the Lord closes the door on the ark. And he sets them into motion. Days, weeks later, the water has covered Everything is dead except for what is in that ark. And that's why when you have, when we talked about this, when we were in this passage last year, that's why the, the story of the flood, the ark, is, is not appropriate for nursery rooms. Because it's not about cute little animals. It's about horrendous, terrible judgment and punishment. It is about death. If you want to put something on the wall of the nursery in your church or in Sunday school rooms that accurately depicts Noah's Ark, there's one particular painting from hundreds of years ago. It's an etching, and this is what it should look like. It should look dark. It should look like a small crag of rock in the water. And on that water are a few children. And around that crag of rock are parents who are desperately seeking to stay afloat and pushing their children onto that rock so they don't perish. And floating in the water all around them are dead animals and other people. And floating and and flying above them are exhausted buzzards and birds who cannot find a place to land. If you want to put something on your walls about the flood and Noah's Ark, that's what it ought to be. And if you put that on the wall of your 
nursery, that's really weird. You're a sick person. But that is the accurate portrayal of Noah's ark. It is judgment. It is death. It is dying. And in that, in that image, there's nothing that you want to relish or cherish or celebrate. But in the very next passage, there is a great deal to celebrate. Because as we open, as chapter 8 closes, and as the family is coming out of the ark, out of the boat, chapter 9 unfolds. And there is something that is great and merciful and beautiful. In chapter 9, we find that the creator of the world has not chosen to just wipe the slate clean and, not, and say, you know what? It's just the three of us again. I liked us three better than all of them. He didn't go back to the Son and the Holy Spirit and say, you know, it was just so much nicer when it was just the three of us because we just weren't busy with their evilness. Instead, he said, we love the creation so much that we're going to start it over again. Matter of fact, you know what? He couldn't do that. He couldn't, he couldn't do that because in Genesis 3, he made a promise. In Genesis 3, he made a promise and said, the seed of this woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so therefore, because he made a promise, he couldn't just pull the plug and let it all spin out of control. You see, that's what we're going to be studying today in our passage. We're going to be looking at what it means to have a God that is a promise keeper. And we're going to be looking at how different that is than, than we are. So when he made a promise in Genesis 3 that he is going to send a redeemer who's going to crush the head of the snake and is going to give mankind an opportunity to have their sins paid for, when he gets to Genesis 6 and he's disgusted with the whole situation, he couldn't pull the plug because he had made a promise. And once he makes a promise, he cannot unpromise it. He cannot say, I changed my mind. He cannot say, you know what? I know what I said. Things have changed. I'm going to do something different now. He can't do that. That's why Noah is so important. Because Noah is this thin thread that takes from original creation, perfection, and then the unwinding that into evil. And then one man, one man, is the thin thread between the promises of Genesis 3, saying there is a Messiah who will come, to Genesis 9, Genesis 10, and then especially Genesis 12 when he introduces Abram. And he says, through you, your seed will bless all nations. Noah was that thin thread of that promise of Genesis 3 coming true with the birth of Christ. One man is the keeping of that promise. We get in Genesis chapter 1. He says, verse 28, And blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sky, and, and of, of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over all living things that moves on the earth. Flip over into your passage, chapter 9, verse 1 here, and see here he is. He, this is the part of the reboot. And God blessed. Well, first of all, you see that happen here. Verse 28 of chapter 1 says, God blessed them. Ch- verse 1 of chapter 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
Now, you, you see, there's a little bit of a difference here, though, because in, in chapter 1, verse 28, he says to subdue and rule. But that's different now because in, ch- in verse 2 of 9, he says, And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on all the beasts of the sky. And so you see it's changed. Chapter 1, subdue and rule, all of that. Things are different now. You're not going to subdue them. You're not going to rule them. They will be afraid of you. They'll be afraid of you. He goes on in, verse, in chapter 1 of, I mean, verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, he said the same thing in chapter 1, verse 28. In both, in both the original and the reboot, you're blessed. In the original and the reboot, there's another thing that's similar. In the original, he's just created. In the reboot, he is recreating. In the original, he says, be fruitful and multiply. In the reboot, he says the same thing. Be fruitful and multiply. Both of them, he says, fill the earth. And then he gets into, and in both cases, although we're not going to get into today, in both cases, there's a curse. Chapter 3, he curses the serpent. Later on in this very chapter, chapter 9, God curses Canaan. We're going to be dealing with that in a, in a week to come. And here he says this really interesting about the animals. He says, now they're going to be afraid of you. But notice what he's doing here is he's added, he says to them, all right, now in this new menu, in the reboot, the menu is different. Because before, it it was plants. He goes, now you have chicken on the menu. He says, you can take from this and you can eat anything you'd like. He says, but don't eat the blood. The reason he says makes that one tiny statement is because he's setting the stage that life is in the blood. And then later on, as he introduces the sacrificial system, what appeases, what makes atonement for sin? Blood. Later on, when my sins were paid for, when your sins were paid for, what paid for our sins? The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. So here he is. He's making this statement. He says, and matter of fact, it even goes even further here in chapter 9. He says, don't eat the blood because that is life. But then he says on top of that, he goes, but every life is important. And so any man who takes a life, his life would be required of him. And he says, and why does he say it in the passage? You can look and he says, because that man has the image of God in him. And that's not yours to take. It's mine alone. So therefore, if you do take the life of another man, your life is required of you. Well, that's a problem if you're a Christian and you oppose capital punishment, isn't it? That's a problem. In this passage, he builds into this thing that says that the way, that w- the way we're going to try and not let Genesis 1 through 6 happen again is that now your life will be required of you. What happened to Cain when he killed Abel? Did God kill him? No, he didn't. He didn't. And we do not see that happening in anything in chapter 1 through 6. It says that Lamech was a a violent man, that he killed for pleasure. It never says that he was punished. It never says that they went after him and they put him on trial and put a death sentence on him. It never says even that they tried him, they put a death sentence on him, and then they put him in in jail and and argued about it for the next 30 years. It doesn't say that either. 
Nothing happened like that. But you get here and things are different now. The image of man is in each of you. And so when you take the life of another man, your life is required of you because you've damaged that image, because you've accosted that image. Did he accost the image of, of Jason? Did he, did he accost the image of Judy? No, it was the image of God that he accosted. So really, when you take the life of another man, you're not just like, it's just not a violent act on that person. It's a violent act on God and his image. And he says, that's going to cost you your life. Let's unfold that a little bit. Psalms 139 says that in my mother's womb you formed me. If you take the life out of that womb, your life is required of you. In the 1930s, or in that time frame, there was a movement in our nation, not only in our nation but in other parts of the world, called eugenics. And it said, you know what? Those people who are not on par with the rest of us we should eliminate them from the gene pool so that our gene pool stays strong. So there are children in this room that would have been eliminated underneath that mindset because they denigrated the gene pool. When that happened, that was an affront to the image of God and their lives should have been required of them. Personal opinion, is it one of these days, probably when I'm the old guy, they're going to go, it costs a lot of money to keep these old people alive. It costs a lot of money. So this is what we're going to do. If you get to this place and this age and you have this thing wrong, we're just going to kind of like, you know, not take care of you. That will be an affront on the image of God and God himself as well. The only time that it's right to take the life of another human being would be, based on this passage, when they have taken the life of another human being. That's a hard truth, but that is God's system. And I think that he has it figured out. He is smarter. He is more sovereign. He is more intelligent. He understands the value of that. And he said in, in chapters 1 through 6, this came really unwound. What we're going to do here from, from chapter 9 until 2018 is this. If you take the life of one, your life is required of you. That's the way we're going to try and, and limit the violence of mankind. But we... As is the case, mankind constantly corrupts God's plan and God's ways, don't we? Here we are. He said, chapter 4, 5, 6, 7 here, chapter 8, he says, this is, all, this is how we're going to do this now. This is how it's going to work from now on. You can eat any animal that's out there. Don't eat the blood. Now then also, what's going to happen is this, is if you kill another person, your life is demanded of you. And he moves on into verse 8. And he says, now I'm making my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And this is this, he says, and every living creature, everything that's in the earth, verse 10, he reestates that in verse 11. I'm making my covenant with you. And then what he does, he says, now then, I've made a covenant with you and I'm putting a sign as a reminder to that covenant. Do you notice that in the passage, I'm really sure about this, but I'm really going to double check because it does not say in the passage that any time you look at a rainbow, remember that God has a covenant with you. In verse 15, he says, and when I, and I will remember my covenant. 
And in verse 16, and when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the covenant. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that he says, I'm making a covenant with you and I'm setting something in the, in the, in the clouds to remind me of it, to always remember that I've done that. In essence, what he's done is he says, I put a ring on it so that I'll always remember the covenant I made. There's many other kind of things that happen like that. When people make covenants and make promises, they do things to remember them. Matter of fact, as we go through Genesis, you're going to see time and again where man has made a promise, has made a covenant, says this, is, or this thing happened, and they put an Ebenezer up. They put a cairn up. There you go, students, all right? They put this pile of rocks up, and they says, this is here to remember this covenant we've made with you, this covenant we made among ourselves. We made this reminder that this is what we're doing. Oh, and one other thing about this is that notice in this passage, if you look at it, man does nothing for this covenant to be remained in place. Why did God tell Joshua and the children of Israel as they're about to go into the promised land? He says, if you obey, I will bless you. But if you disobey, I will curse you. That covenant had, a con- had, a, had conditions on it. But this one says, I made a covenant. No matter what you do, I'm never doing this ever again. It'll never happen. So these blessings of this, of this covenant he made with Noah, they're not conditional. Every time the seasons change, every time there's, there's that rainbow in the cloud, that's his way of saying, I made a covenant with you to never destroy the earth by flood again. And I'm always going to remember that covenant. And it's between me and you and every living creature, and this will never happen again. Now, tell me, what is the fallout of a broken promise? How does that impact you? Talk to me. How does that impact you? Broken trust. What else? Disappointment. Hurt. A betrayal of trust, right. What else? What else happens when a promise is broken? Anything else you can think of? Yes, fractured relationship, right. It's never the same again, right. Painful, painful, right. Resentment, right. Do you see... Why it's so important that we have a God who never breaks a promise. Do you see what it would be like? As a matter of fact, let's just say this. Do you see what it is like for so many other religious people who ascribe to a system that they're never really sure of where they stand with their God? When they have to do things, they have to work. And, and there's all kinds of things that people have to do to appease their God to make sure they're in good standing with him. So you, you read about religious festivals where they, they flagellate themselves, they whip themselves. It's part of like appeasing God. It's part of identifying with God. It's something that they have to do because it's in their mind that's how they stay in good graces with him. And so many other things that people do in their religious structures where they have to suffer pain so that they can be in good graces with God to keep him happy so he doesn't change his mind about them, so he doesn't change the circumstances. Do you understand that this God that has 
entered into this covenant with these men has entered into a covenant with you and I. And that there is nothing that we can do that would change our relationship with him. This is what's really, really crazy cool. Is that in Genesis, there's this passage, and we already talked about it. And, he's, and, and when man broke the covenant with God there, when man disobeyed there, God said, you know what? You're going to suffer consequences, but I'm going to, I, made, I have a plan in place. Even before you were on the scene, I had a plan in place to redeem you back to myself to make things good between you and I. Now then, that plan has started right now. This is Genesis 3. He's talking to them. And he says, now, and the other thing is this. Serpent, Satan, what's going to happen is, is this woman, this broken woman, is going to have descendants, and one of those descendants is going to have a child that will crush your head and ultimately defeat you for eternity. And that child will be the redemption of all mankind. Aren't you grateful that Genesis 9 happened? Aren't you grateful that today you have the opportunity to sit here and not worry about your relationship with God? You see, that seed... That child that was eventually born, that child that was eventually born was Jesus Christ, the son of this woman, Mary, and the Holy Spirit. And that child grew up, and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. And he was the servant of God here on earth. And he came, and he explained to mankind at that time, and he says, this is what it means to have a relationship with God. And this is what it means for you to have your sins paid for. And this is how you, you come into relationship with God. John 14, no man comes to the Father except through me. Anyone who's understood that Christ died for their sins and realized that they needed his death as their payment for their sins, anyone who's believed that and said, I need Jesus from the forgiveness of my sins, that person who's done that has entered into a relationship with God and has had their sins paid for and are in the middle of this covenant here where they do not have to worry ever, 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 ever again about whether God is happy with them or not. They do not ever, 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 ever have to do anything to make sure that they're okay with God, that God's okay with them. Because he is a type of God that says, he said that I have forgiven your sins and as far as the east is from the west, I've put them away. I've forgotten them. Every sin you've ever committed, past Present, our future has been paid for. And there's nothing you have to do. There's nothing at all you have to do to have your sins covered now. They're done. We're beyond that. Next discussion. What's for dinner? What are you happy about? He's like this God. He's a father to us. When he says that your sins are paid for, when he says that you don't have to do anything else at all for your sins, he means it. And you don't have to worry about whether he's going to break that promise. Genesis has more than one occasion where God's character, his covenant-keeping character is exhibited. Where he says, this is what I'm doing, and it will not be undone. And we are the benefactors of that today. Because that promise that was made in Genesis 3, 
came true in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the birth of Jesus. And then it became true in your life when one day when you sat down, you went, I am so sick and tired of feeling the guilt and the shame of my sin. I don't know how to do this anymore. I don't know what to do about my sin. And someone said to you, Jesus has already done that for you. Jesus already paid for your sin. All you have to do is to believe in him, to trust in him for the payment of your sin. And you're done. He's taken care of it. He adopts you. He brings you into the family. And he's made a promise to you that your sins will never be counted against you ever again. This morning, if you're here and you're not sure about your status with God, I would encourage you to come up and talk with me. Talk with someone else you know that has placed their faith in Christ. Because there are a ton of people in this room who live with a confidence that their sins will never be counted against them again because God made a promise to them to that effect. If you're sitting here or if you came here this morning and thought, you know what, I'm only here because I'm just going to try and make sure that God is happy with me. You're here for the wrong reason, brother. You don't have to be here for that reason. You don't have to be here for that reason. Being here doesn't save you. Trusting him does. Being here doesn't put you into the promise. Trusting him does. So this morning, if you're here and you've never trusted him as your personal savior, if you've never trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins, he longs for you to do that today. Then the other thing is this. The other side of that coin is this. I venture to say in a room this size, in any size room, that there are people who've trusted Christ, who know they have, and they have no doubt about their eternal security, but they have lived in sin for so long that they're so shamed, that they're so burdened down with the guilt. You need to understand that you don't have to be that way. You need to understand that he would long to have you come and clean up your relationship with him. Come and just say, I know that I have walked away. And that guy this morning said that all I had to do was come and ask you to forgive me, and you would forgive me. Is that really true? Talk to him about it. Because I know what the answer will be. Because he said it to me so many times. That promise to forgive sins and to bring you into new life exists also when he says that when you're my child and you've sinned, we're still in a good place with each other. Come and talk to me. You will never sin enough to make him hate you. You will never sin enough to make him say, you're no longer mine. That's not possible. No matter what you're doing, he says, that sin has been paid for. If you're a promise breaker, he says, that sin's paid for. If you're a liar, he says, that sin's paid for. If you're a cheater, he says, that sin's paid for. He says, if you're a wife beater, that sin's paid for. If you're getting high, that sin's paid for. If you're getting drunk, that sin's paid for. He says, no matter what your issue is, that sin's paid for. Let's talk about that. Let's be in relationship with each other because I've made that promise to you. This morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, I would encourage you in the next few moments right now to simply, with no fancy words, with nothing special to have to say, just tell God, 
I know I'm a sinner. I know I've never trusted you. Please save me. There is no special formula. There are no special words. It is the earnestness of your heart calling out to a redemptive God who will, that saves you. Do that this morning. Do that this morning. In your own words right now, wherever you're sitting, just call out to him and tell him. If you're here this morning and you've walked away from the Lord and you need to fix that, you need to clean up your walk, you need to just work out some things with Him, do that right now, right now. Father, we thank You that You are a promise-keeping God. We thank You that there is nothing we can do that makes You break promises. No matter how many times we do it, You are faithful. May we learn what it means to, to live and to belong to a promise-keeping God and the security and the joy that that should give us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.